what we get is the intimacy of marriage and the intimacy of people who have been married. There's an authenticity about that. There's a sense that's very real. Obviously, Kubrick wanted that. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This week, we're going to be talking about the 1999 film Eyes Wide Shut from director Stanley Kubrick, and I'm honored to welcome to the show Albert Lanier. Albert, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Good to be here on the Crooked Table podcast. Yeah, and I love that you uh, you brought yet another 1999 film. We've actually had a kind of side mission this year of going through a lot of the 1999 releases uh, because of, obviously this is the 20th anniversary of that kind of game-changing year in cinema. So uh, tell listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, what you have going on. Well, I am a now-retired uh, freelance journalist and freelance writer. I had a 22-year career as a print journalist and as a freelance writer. Um, I wrote basically mostly in Hawaii, uh, but also, uh, and of course in Honolulu, but also in Los Angeles, California. I lived there a couple times and in Seattle. And basically I was a local and regional freelancer. The relevant aspect that, that would apply to film audiences and audiences interested in film is for a few years, I was reviewing films and covering film festivals in Hawaii for a website called Ain't It Cool News, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Absolutely. And that film website, I, as I mentioned, I covered film festivals. I interviewed people. I wrote reviews and I looked at other aspects of, of, the festivals here in Hawaii, primarily the Hawaii International Film Festival. And that was the major one. There was also one for a time called Cinema Paradise. And so I, I wrote reviews from film festivals here in Hawaii for Any Cool News for several years. And I've also written for a magazine called Hawaii Film and Video. I've done a couple pieces for them. And so that's sort of the filmic component of my career as a journalist and as a freelancer. And that's the major relevant portion for, I guess, whoever would listen to this show. And so I stopped reviewing films in 2010. So it's been several years and I've been interviewed on podcast in talk shows for about a decade now. I've been interviewed on a new number of subjects, but it was interesting. The, the film portion of my career reviewing and going to festivals and all of that interviewing filmmakers, I never been interviewed about. So this is sort of um, a new kind of cycle with me, I guess, in terms of media where I'm talking about film and I'm talking about entertainment in general, but primarily film and for this is kind of the first time that I'm going to be analyzing a film on a program. I've talked about numerous subjects and 
issues on shows, but I've never analyzed a film and then dissected and looked at a film. So this is a first for me. Oh, well, I'm glad to be a part of it. So what, what made oh, you, you, what made you decide to retire from, uh, from covering film? Um, the catalyst was a bit personal. Um, mm-hmm. basically, I don't know if I should discuss it. Uh, only as much as you're comfortable um, with. I mean, obviously you can kind of skate right. past that if, if you don't um, want to get too into details. I, well, I'll look at the, the less personal factor, the public factor and also personal factor was, I was tired. I had, I had actually set up or intended to retire in um, 2008. And I was living in LA in 2008 and I was looking at, okay, when do I want there to be an exit strategy for my career? When do I want there to be an end game from it? And I opted for my 20th anniversary, which was in 2015. And Unfortunately, the recession of 2007 to 2009 had a impact upon me. The post-recessionary economy sort of really wiped me out. Mm-hmm. And so I w- had to go through financial struggles. And so by the time I got back on my feet after, I think it was three or four years of skating by and trying to get by, I really, really wanted to retire and um, I put it off for a couple of years. I was writing for a few magazines, uh, freelancing for some magazines. But in 2017, I just felt this was the time to do it. And uh, I've been retired now for a couple of years, um, about two and a half years or so. And the interesting thing is, you know, I, I mean, I've been looking, I live in Hawaii and I've lived in Hawaii for a little while now, but I'm looking to get back to the mainland. And if I get back to the mainland, the possibility is that I may come out of retirement. So, and if I do come out of retirement, which is a strong possibility, I want to be able to kind of focus what I do. You know, film was one aspect of what I did. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I hate to put it this way, but I was kind of like a parachute. You know, I think about parachute journalists. I was like a parachute reviewer because okay. I would I would review films really during film festivals in Hawaii, and I had to cover all kinds of other stories and events for other p- kinds of publications other kinds of newspapers and magazines. And I really couldn't spend all my time as a reviewer. I was only a certain portion of the year that I could do that. So it was kind of unusual as a reviewer in that I was basically what I would call festival reviewer. I'd review films at festivals. So I'd go to film festivals and I would be doing, I don't know how many films a day, you know, like the Hawaii International Film, the Hawaii International Film Festival is I think what 11 or 12 days. Mm. And I'm doing... I was watching probably a minimum of three to four, I would say five films a day, far more than that, ultimately. But I think a minimum was three or four. So I'm watching a bunch of films. I'm interviewing people and I'm going to parties. And I, I was 
really was exhausting. It was tiring. Um, and I miss going to festivals now because I haven't been to a festival in the eight, nearly nine years. But um, And I'd like to get back to doing festivals. I'd like to get back to doing them. But um, I really was exhausted by that pace. So, and that's one of the reasons I'm kind of looking forward to this is because for the first time, I'm not doing the kind of factory type work I was doing where I was going into festivals and I'm watching the, I don't know how many films, mm-hmm. uh, dozens of films and, you know, maxing out my notepad and going home and writing up reviews and transcribing interviews. I mean, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And the nice thing about retirement is that, um, you know, I finally had the time to kind of get away from work. I still write a blog for medium.com, which is media and uh, news issues, you know, current events, news and media. Um, But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have to do the grind like I used to as a freelancer. So I'm, I'm glad for that. But film is something that I do miss. I think I do miss reviewing films a little. I certainly miss going to festivals and seeing a bunch of films. Mm-hmm. So I think if I come out of, re- it looks like I'm going to come out of retirement. And if I do, I want to focus on entertainment and films. Whereas in the past I had to do politics, I had to cover elections, I had to, do features. I, I did all kinds of articles to make a living and put food on the table and money in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm doing you know I'm I'm doing the, sh- the podcast obviously, but I I'm also doing full time freelance as well. And I think people underestimate yeah. how much hustle is involved and just how much like con- like you're you're just in a con your career is sort of in a constant state of flux. So. You know, uh, I think it's to your credit that you were able to retire and take a uh, take a break in, from it and kind of recalibrate. Now, when you come back out of retirement, you can kind of reinvent yourself and, and focus on the elements that you really enjoy rather than just exhausting yourself constantly. Yeah, I sure hope so. I really do hope so. Um, and I, I can only I don't need to imagine what you're going through. I don't have a podcast. I never did a podcast because I started as a freelance writer and journalist in 1994. So Mm -hmm. I never had podcast or did a podcast. So I can't imagine what it's like to do a podcast and also write articles. I mean, you, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. I don't either. (laughs) That's the tricky part. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it just happens. It just gets itself done, I guess. Um, so no, that's cool. So, uh, so the do you have the the specific URL for your blog on Medium so people can find it? Oh well, it media. I think it's medium.com slash at the doctor fifty. Okay, excellent, excellent. We all have yeah. to definitely have and to it's check not that. a. I have to say, it's not a movie blog. So, I have to make that a point here. It's. Not about movies. It's about the news and right. it's about media. Well, there's a lot. So there's a lot I to do say about see, that now. You know, I I don't know how your followers and your your listeners will react to that. You right. know, 
but that that is the blog. Um, you know, maybe things will change if I come back and focus on film and focus on entertainment and focus on other things. No, but that's that's the blog. Very cool. Excellent. So uh, this episode, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be talking about the 1999 film Eyes Wide Shut from director Stanley Kubrick. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. That was a little bit of the trailer for Eyes Wide Shut from 1999, directed by Stanley Kubrick. So, Albert, what was the uh, what was your thought process in selecting this film to talk about? Well, I'm on YouTube a good deal. And okay. I came across a lot of analyses for Eyes Wide Shut. Why I came across them, I don't know. Blame the YouTube algorithm. <laughs> But I came across these analyses, and I first saw Eyes Wide Shut in 1999 when it came out. So I saw it over 20 years ago. And what intrigued me was the type of analyses that people were doing, even though I disagreed with, I think, a good chunk of them. I found it still interesting that they selected Eyes Wide Shut and were fascinated enough with that film to examine it and dissect it and sort of stretch it out and look into it in ways that I think a lot of people wouldn't. And I think much like the models, the two models in, in the film, I sort of was sort of grabbed by the film <laughs> and lured into analyzing it yeah. for this podcast anyway. You know, it was like the sirens of literature. They were beckoning me <laughs> over Eyes Shut. And I, I mean, I think, you know, Kubrick kind of has that tendency in general. I mean, with a lot of his films, they, they do invite that kind of dissection. I mean, specifically things like 2001 or, or The Shining or Clockwork Orange that they, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they are almost designed to incite conversation. Uh, would, would you agree with that? I would. They're really created to be seen multiple times and to be analyzed in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And I think they're kind of, in my view, sort of set up like paintings or sculpture or other forms of art. The whole point of art that you can view at a gallery or at a museum is that it has to be viewed 
and it has to be viewed to my mind for a while. You have to stand there and look at it Mm -hmm. and then see it. You know, I, I hadn't been in a gallery or an art museum in years. And I went to the, the, what it was, I think the museum of art here in Honolulu. And I was, uh, at one point I was, I remember sitting down, they had a sofa or something in one of the, one of the rooms where these paintings were. And I sat down and was staring at one of the paintings that was on the wall. And I think that's the aspect of art, which is this, you need to be in a room. You need a place where there is art, where there are paintings, especially. And you need to be able to see that painting. You don't just look at it for one minute and move on. You have to view it for five minutes or 10 minutes or 15. And then think about the painting. It's not enough to simply see that it's a painting and see what kind of painting it is. You have to see what the intent behind it was, what the artist's intent was, and what, and, and not just decipher the why and the what, but perhaps the how, if you can. Mm-hmm. And I think his films are set up like art. If it's set up like painting, if it's set up like sculpture, they're set up to be viewed not simply once, but twice, but three times. And your feeling about the film, your feeling about the material in the film may change with multiple viewing. I know someone, I saw a review recently on YouTube and someone who was reviewing the film actually kind of said that when she saw Eyes Wide Shut initially, uh, it had a different meaning to her than when she saw it again. She felt that some of the story elements and thematic elements weren't as strong the second time she saw it. And of course, that's her view and that's her analysis. But what's important is that his films are meant for multiple viewings and they're meant in the same way that art is meant to be examined. It's meant to be seen as more than just paint strokes or you know, molding, you know, marble or clay or what have you. Right. Yeah. And in this movie, I think particularly it's, it does feel very segmented in a lot of ways. There are a very clear delineations on kind of the, the situations, I guess, that, that uh, Tom Cruise's Bill Harford uh, finds himself in throughout. And it almost feels at times kind of like a mood poem as well. Just, just kind of putting you in his, in his headspace and just kind of mulling on uh, sexuality and and all the all the elements of that and all the applications of it as well. Yes, I'm curious because you mentioned that you had not seen this movie. I had not. Before. I had not seen this. So, what was it like to watch this movie for the first time? That's what I'm curious about. It was uh, it was interesting. It was an experience. Definitely, I, I mean, I, I 100% agree with what you said about Kubrick's films and that they need to be watched at least two or three times to really 
grasped them. Unfortunately, I didn't have time to watch this multiple times for the podcast. But uh, that's why so much of my takeaways aren't really so much with the narrative, which is ultimately not really the point. It's just to get you thinking about, um, let's see, about fidelity, about uh, sexuality, about the uh, the way that society views it, the way that the role that it plays in a mayor. Like there's just basically a, a list of themes and statements that the film makes that it doesn't really answer. It just wants to kind of let you sit with ultimately at the end, in the end, really being the big question, which I know probably a lot of the analysis is centered on was how much of this was a dream, how much of this was real, like what is the, the where is the line there um, between the two? And mm-hmm. that's, I think, something that, that Kubrick is often fascinated with. There is kind of a, a dreamlike state and sort of a dream logic that I think can be applied to a lot of his works. Mm-hmm. Well, my contention with Eyes Wide Shut in regards to the idea of dreams is that first and foremost, I think the structure of the film is not delineated between dreams and reality sharply mm-hmm. and vividly and, and in stark contrast. It is this amalgamation of the dream world and the real world. So these separate worlds meet and intertwine and mix. So what we get with Eyes Wide Shut is a hybrid. It's a fusion film. It's a film that isn't a dream here and reality there, but dream and reality mm-hmm. mixed together, intertwined, commingled. And that probably is what may frustrate some people because they're used to the sort of banal, generic, easily digested American filmic narratives where you know what a dream sequence is and you know what reality is. Right. They're easily and uh, specifically graphically defined on screen. You don't have that in Eyes Wide Shut. And I believe it's one reason why it irritated some people when it came out 20 years ago, perhaps some reviewers as well. What was your reaction with it uh, in 1999 when you first saw it? Did you actually get a chance to review it then? I didn't review it. I did see it because films I didn't review at festivals, I also went to see a bunch of other films Mm -hmm. because you had to see what was out. Exactly. Any reviewer had to do that. What I recall about seeing it in 1999 was the hairs in the back of my neck stood up throughout it. It's a very powerful experience. And I don't think I expected that. I don't know that I had the expectations that a lot of critics had when they saw it. And I think one of the reasons it got panned is what they wanted was some kind of mildly pornographic and basically mainstream sexualized film and Eyes Wide Shut is not that. Mm-hmm. It is about sexuality, but it's a very different take and feel and rhythm and construct to that sexuality. 
But in regards to my experience watching it, yeah, it was first and foremost an experience. It was riveting. That's what I recall. And, and this sort of gets into my initial uh, analysis of the film in terms of structure. I first mentioned that it is the dream world and the real world uh, intertwined and commingled, that it's a hybrid film, that it's a fusion film. I think there are two kinds of structures here. That's the first structure. The second structure are two other worlds, perhaps more thematic. The first is sexuality. And the second is secrecy. And you can relate these to the dream world and the real world, but sexuality and secrecy are really kind of the two pillars thematically and subject-wise that this film sort of is propped up by. And I would also note and I don't know if this is a point that people on YouTube or people elsewhere have mentioned in their reviews or view it in their terms of their analysis. My analysis is that Eyes Wide Shut is not one film. It is two films. The first is this sort of, sort of, sort of really intimate um, domestic drama of sorts. Mm-hmm where you're dealing with the Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman characters as a married couple. I, I don't know if I would say quite Bergman-esque as an Ingmar Bergman. I wouldn't go that far, but it's that sort of domestic drama, uh, or should I say it's this sort of sexual drama involving those two characters. The second film is what I would call a slightly political and slightly class-based thriller. And this is where you see the elements of the Somerton Mansion, the the orgy, and the so-called secret group or secret society, as some have said, uh, where the password Fidelio comes in. So what we have in Eyes Wide Shut, and I think this is one reason that it perhaps really threw a lot of critics and reviewers off their high horses and off their marks, to use a film term, is because this isn't simply a film, but a really two films in one. There's this sexual drama, and there's this sort of intense, riveting thriller. And so it's two films. And I think if you're going to approach Eyes Wide Shut, those, I hope, will help you. Those points that I mentioned, the what I call the dual structure of the film, dreams and the real world. And then, of course, sexuality, and secrecy. And of course, I say it's two films that in one, it's this sort of searing, honest, open drama, sexual drama, and then it's rather intimate, riveting thriller, which has some political and class 
not just overtones, but mostly undertones. So uh, I look at it from perhaps a binary view, perhaps from a dual view. And I'm sure that my views will probably be seen as controversial by people who listen to this podcast. And if they are, so be it. No, I so was eyes wide shut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think uh, I think you're really on something there as far as the the sexuality and secrecy. I mean, as we said, the password is Fidelio, and the faithfulness is obviously kind of where sexuality and secrecy really really meet. And I did note early in the film because we spend I don't know what a half hour, forty minutes, or whatever with Bill and Alice at home, and they're having that whole conversation, which was really kind of the center point of the the marketing for the film that's that's as you mentioned that's something else that i noticed too watching it now for the first time i had just being sold on the poster and the teaser trailer which was just them making love in front of the mirror i had expected it to be more sexually graphic and it's really not about that at all there's nothing about this movie that was really titillating um and, and i think that that's well, go ahead go ahead well here's the thing it's not this American ideal of sort of mainstream sexuality that's promoting a lot of American films. Mm -hmm. It's sort of TNA all the way, uh, the idea of pure heroes, I would say, of pure desire and of um, a sort of unregulated desire. It's, it's just a matter of a sort of base, I would say kind of like peeping Tom, you know, film is seen as a voyeuristic medium. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to such things, sexuality and nudity, the audience are in essence, peeping Tom. You could argue that the audience are peeping Toms for any film that comes out. If you want to make that comparison. Um, I mean, the film that really, I think makes that point known was I think Michael Powell's peeping Tom in in the early sixties, I believe. Um, but when it comes to sexuality in this film, what you get is not the typical American filmic and cinematic view of sexuality, which is sort of like the, the, what is it? The slogan of healed college, get in, get off, <laughs> get on with life. Right. I sort of alter that certain very, this is different. If you look at the way that women are presented in terms of the nudity of eyes wide shut, uh, there's a decorative effect that you see in the Somerton mansion orgy and in the Somerton mansion party scene women are almost like sort of with the masks on and their cloaks, even taking it off. Women are almost like artworks. They're almost like statuary. Mm -hmm. They don't pose like statuary, but they're almost like statuary. They're almost like artworks. Um, and what's interesting to me in thinking about this film recently and doing a little research before I did this podcast was the way that Kubrick renders the female body is with a certain amount of desire, 
but also with a certain amount of distance. You know, the female form is seen at times in a very detached and clinical way. A couple examples of that is uh, the Bill Hartford character. Uh, he's, you know, doing a checkup or uh, putting a stethoscope to a patient in stoplets. Right. You know, that's completely rendered uh, non-sexual. I mean, she's topless, but it, there's a clinical aspect to that. There's, you know, she's getting a checkup. You know, it's not titillating in any way, nor meant to be. When Bill also goes to the morgue to check out the model who's died, he views this body in its slab, which is interesting. You don't always get to see that in film. Mm -hmm. And again, there's a detachment from se sexuality. There's a desire, you could say, that people could have if they see the female body. And some people may have that. But I view it from a non-sexual point of view. You look at this and it's rendered inert. And it's rendered in that context. It's completely... Um, it's completely material, a material thing. It's a body. It's a corpse. It's, it's something that's no longer alive. It's this lifeless vessel. It's this, this, this completely, this sort of husk, this shell. And so what was a woman, what was a beautiful young woman is now a corpse. That that's one of the aspects. Those aspects, those two aspects, are part of what is so intriguing to me about the sexuality in Eyes Wide Shut. There is sexuality in the film. I mean, when you look at Nicole Kidman's sort of dream about her desire for this uh, this military uh, this military individual that she saw that's really potent and sexual. I mean, those scenes are very sexually charged. That's sexuality and it's in a rather pure carnal form. But you don't see a lot of that in the film. You do see it to a certain extent in the orgy. But what Kubrick is doing in Eyes Wide Shut is he's sort of giving us a sort of different views of sexuality. It is an A form of sexuality, but different aspects of sexuality. Sexuality isn't just about pure heroes, pure desire, pure, like I said, you know, TNA, get on, get off, and get on with life. It's about more than that. It's about, it's also about wanting to have sex. It's about wanting to be intimate sexually. And that's, of course, what drives Bill mm -hmm. and what drives his journey throughout the film. He's a guy who's looking, in a sense, he's looking for a certain form of sexuality. I would say the sort of generic American sexuality. But he doesn't really see what you notice in that film is that his wife tells him about her desire 
and that bothers him because he doesn't view women as wanting sex in that way, right. which is a typical male stereotype of women, that they're not sexual, even though men view women in sexual terms all the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of aspects of the society wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the commodification of sexualization of women. So, so to me, that, that film, when you talk about, again, one of the, one of the pillars of the film, sexuality, it's not just one form of sexuality, it's other. But there's a sense of detachment and engagement at this also. Again, the intertwining of things. Right. Just as the dream world intertwines with the real world, just as we have, in a sense, sexuality intertwining with secrecy. So we also have one form of sexuality intertwining with another. This cold, detached view of sexuality and this hot, uh, sort of intense, you know, traditional form of it. It really is a deconstruction of, of of sexuality, like you've been saying. I mean, I think you see so much of that, in, um, and as you mentioned, the scenes with uh, Alice and the the naval officer, which really just are basically the the dramatic thrust for for Bill's uh, Bill's quest, a sort of vision quest that he goes on in the middle chunk of the movie, and and as you know, as you pointed out, you it does raise the questions of. The misconception, the the stereotype with women, and um, you know, she even says at one point, she's like, "Oh, he wouldn't be talking to me because unless he wants to, unless he wants to fuck me because I'm a beautiful woman." And and it kind of raises the question, like, is you know, is there is a certain amount of jealousy in a marriage healthy? Like, is there that balance between trust and also you know desire? And I, I think the film starts with both of them and. Obviously, both very detached, both kind of flirting with the idea of having an affair, but not really pursuing it, just kind of stuck in limbo. And that conversation is really spurs on, uh, you know, I guess a deeper, a, a deeper dive into uh, into what the nature of their their the sexual side of their marriage has become and what they really want it to be. And I think that you know that really comes back around at the end in the in the, the way that their conversation finally uh, finally finishes off. Yes, it, it's interesting that you kind of bring up the married aspect. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, you're dealing with a married couple here with Bill and Alice Hartford. Right. And I think part of the reason that this film works so well is that Kubrick made the decision to cast a married couple at the time. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, Bill and Alice. Absolutely. And so I think... A large reason why that film works is you have a real married couple who lend authenticity to playing this obviously uh, unreal or fictional married couple. And I think what you have with Tom and Nicole is you have an authenticity that can only be gained from... a a couple who have a certain understanding of each other as people. Mm-hmm. And so they understand each other as people. And they, you don't have to do what you would normally do with 
other actors who aren't married, and that is get them to create a relationship, which is what you would have to do as an actor. You have to create a relationship with the other actor and thus create that sense of a marriage for these characters. They don't, I think, have to do that, or they didn't have to do that in that film, and thus they could just, in my view, work on that sense of intimacy and of honesty. You know, when Alice tells him her desire, she's being honest. See, it's interesting to me that the character who talks about sex in, um, you know, in regards to the couple is the Alice character. But the character who's going out looking for sex is Bill. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, Alice when she goes to, the, to Ziegler's party, the Christmas party, she's hit on by the character of Sandor, but ultimately resists him. If we look at the Bill character, he doesn't resist women who are coming on to him, I think other than the married, the married, the married woman who, who declares her love for him. For the most part, he's in situations where he's close to coitus, so to speak. Oh, yeah. He's close to having sex, and then doesn't. We see that with the prostitute Domino. We see that with the two models at the, the Christmas party. Um, and you could argue it's also possible it could have been the case at the orgy. Um, you know, had he not been found out at that point, he might've gone on to, to engage in wild, passionate love as the cliche goes, mm -hmm. uh, much like everyone else there was. So he's someone who's, his coitus is blocked at every turn by circumstances, by kind of, you know, you could argue by, you could argue literally by the script, by, by, by the plot points <laughs> in the film. But, but it's interesting. Again, when you look at the contrast between those characters, her character is the one that talks about desire and having it. We see her, meaning Alice, make love in the film. Mm -hmm. We don't see him, Bill, make love in the film. Right. We also see Alice nude a couple of times, you know, at the beginning and then later on. Now, so, again, it's interesting. And here's another point I will make about the film. I will argue that although you have it's more a literary point. Although you have the wife called Alice, you know, Nicole Kidman's character is called Alice, Bill, in a sense, is the real Alice in the film. That is an excellent point. I mean, I even wrote, you know, wrote, made a note of how kind of otherworldly the film feels and that he is really kind of tumbling down the rabbit hole almost of, of American Eros, as you put it. 
um, in the source material, mm-hmm. for example, the novella that this is, I guess, kind of loosely based on, the characters in that are, are Jewish, and Kubrick really, really hammered home that he wanted these two to be, like, pure American, like, as vanilla as possible, as, you know... And, and I think casting Tom Cruise and Nicole, well, Nicole Kidman's not American, but casting Tom Cruise to embody that, I think really feeds into that that commentary on the American viewpoint of sexuality. Um, his mm. his way of, uh, Kubrick's obviously infamously was a very method director, very meticulous. And from some things I read, like actually had the two of them in kind of psychoanalysis sessions to really like, dig up their their own relationship so they could use that in the film. It almost <laughs> makes you wonder to a certain extent, like what role did that process have on their marriage, which ended, I think, a year or so after this. Um, and yeah. yeah, so there's there's a real sense of in the film, dream and reality kind of melding together. But in, you know, with the with the film, sort of an, an art and uh, a reality and art kind of crossing path with these two this two like huge power couple of the nineties that now it's been so long. We've had the whole Katie Holmes thing with Tom Cruise and everything with that. And, um, I think people, you know, younger people now might forget that these two were like the, the big couple in Hollywood for quite a while until I guess until after they making this movie. So, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on that, on that whole thing? I think when it comes to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, I think there was a sense of, as I mentioned before, there's a sense of reality in regards to their marriage. And there's a sense of authenticity because they were married at the time. So he doesn't have to create a married couple out of two actors who either don't know each other or don't know each other as well as a husband and wife would. Mm-hmm. And... What, well, what's interesting about it is, yes, Tom Cruise was a major star and is a major star now. And Nicole Kidman was also a star to a great extent. Maybe not as big as Tom, but certainly a movie star. And it's intriguing to me that, that Cruise uh, was the star of this film because I think Cruise is never really seen as a serious actor. I don't think he's seen as an actor who does parts that sort of stretch him. Mm -hmm. I think he's seen primarily as a box office hero, as a movie star in the most obvious and generic Hollywood way. And yes, his films are often tentpole for quadrant blockbusters. But I think people forget that he's worked with some interesting filmmakers and some very good filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone. And of course here, Stanley Kubrick. And I think he's someone who on occasion has given very interesting performances and has done good work. And I think he's not really seen as an actor quite in the way that you see other actors like De Niro and Al Pacino and, um, even someone like Denzel Washington. So um, it's interesting. I, I think in some respects he's underrated. And I think his performance here was underrated. Right after this, this was, this was probably the part of his career where he was really, after Jerry Maguire, 
This is this was his first movie since then because of the insanely long uh, shoot. This was a 400 days of continuous filming, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them were signed to open-ended contracts. They had to recast. Uh, Harvey Keitel was in the movie at one point and then recast by Sidney Pollack, all that. But then after this, I mean, he's, then he worked with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson right after this with Magnolia, which came out, I, I mm-hmm. guess, like the end of 99, kind of leaning into early 2000. So I... He, he, I think that was probably a conscious decision on his part to just step outside of his, you know, marquee idol box and and really kind of prove what he could do on screen. It's probably a certain level of security. I mean, I think if he were at the state he was pre Top Gun, I don't know he would be able to do a film like this. Mm-hmm. He might, but I doubt it. Um, of course, it's also about what a middle-aged married couple or close to middle-aged. Um, so he's got some years on him here in this film in Eyes Wide Shut. So he's not this the young guy that he was in Risky Business, right? So there's that too, and I like I said, I think the the Tom Cruise. Partly, when I look at this Bill character, you need someone who's that openly handsome. Mm-hmm. I think. I, I don't know that you could do this type of film just with an actor who is plain looking. And I hate to say that, but I think it's true because you you have to be able to have the women like Domino and the women like the two models sort of draw, you know, you know, be attracted to him almost magnetically. Now you could argue the two models might be prostitutes and in eyes wide shut, but they're still attracted to him. You, you have to have that attraction. So when you have the character who states, she's in love with him and who has been it's convincing because you go yes <laughs> looking at tom cruise and looking at <laughs> yeah, how handsome exactly. he is, it makes absolute sense and someone would say well that's a kind of you know simplistic reading of it well it's not really simplistic it's it's actually logical it's it's a matter of attraction, and that's a part of this film too, as it is with any part of sexuality. But again, when you look at sexuality, different shades and different aspects. What's one of the things that happens in this film? This character walks down the street, and he and there are a group of guys that mm-hmm. come up, and they knock him, you know, into a car, and say that he's basically gay. Right. And when I first saw this in 99, I went, wow. <laughs> and I hate to bring this up because of all the gay rumors about Tom Cruise. Right. I went, are you kidding me? You can't be serious. But I don't know that Tom Cruise might have even done that scene if it wasn't Stanley Kubrick. Right. I really don't think he would have done anything like that. Because that that scene that scene is making a point just like many other scenes make a point again 
And another aspect of sexuality, since we're looking at one of the pillars of the film, you also have to look at what goes on with the rainbow shot. You know, where Bill gets his costume for the Summerton party and what goes on there. And like I said, I saw this movie, the hairs in the back of my neck stood up. And, you know, I think that scene was one of the reasons it did. But you're seeing another form of sexuality in that scene where the owner of the shop is outraged at, you know, the two Japanese businessmen and what their intentions are. Right. I'll put it that way. What well, their intentions are. I think it's the side of, of uh, sexuality that's basically exploitation is what that is to me. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, th- that I, I also noticed a very kind of clear parallel between uh, the owner of the shop at the rainbow costume shop, which again is another kind of play on the, the dream logic of the movie because the two, uh, the two ladies at the party at the beginning of the film say, we're going to take him where the rainbow ends, which feels like a clear, a clear uh, reference. That's just me- again, meant for us to question kind of the, the surreal nature of everything in the film, but also the fact that Tom Cruise, uh, you know, Bill and Alice have, a young daughter at home. And then he kind of, when he gets home, he goes in into his daughter's bedroom, like almost to check on her. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I have a, I have a daughter myself, you know, she's almost three, so not quite the same, but it's in that ballpark. And I think the movie was probably trying to, you know, make a point for, for Bill to recognize the, the relationship that he has with his own daughter and how it contrasts with what was going on in that shop. Mm. Yeah, I I kind of like your kind of look at his family life. Like I said, the intertwining nature of the film. And I like how you sort of bring Bill's insistence on looking into his daughter after being at the rainbow shop. Right. Again, these forms of sexuality. And one of the things I would say about sort of gender and sex Uh, in terms of not sexuality, but gender and sex in regards to this film is the women in this film, with the exception of Alice, are, and I hate to say this, but they're all, in a sense, victims in the film, or Mm -hmm. most of them are victims. Domino, of course, contracts AIDS. We have uh, Mandy, who I believe is the model, ends up dead. Um... And of course, we have the daughter of the shop owner. I would say that she probably, you know, um, also was exploited. So we see in this film women as participants in sexuality, but also victims of sexuality in a way that men aren't. And I believe that's part and parcel of the not just the sexuality structure of the film and component, but also of the uh, secrecy aspect of the film. Um, I think that's also a part of that component. And that's something that resonates kind of strongly to me in the film. The only person who isn't sort of victim in terms of females in the film is Alice. And yet also at the, the, 
you know, at the mansion, there's sort of, there's this ritual that's performed with the masks and kind of this posturing that the women are the ones that select the men and walk off with them. So it's almost like I got kind of perverse empowerment, I guess, that sort of happens at the at the party that plays off of the, you know, the inherent victimization of women uh, and their sexuality in American society. And I think that that's, that's really what the the movie's point is, is just uncovering all of that and bringing all the, the like dirty, grimy corners of sexuality in the U.S. and bringing it to the surface and just asking you know us to consider it. Well, I've looked into, uh, or I've mentioned sort of some of the degrees of sexuality, which I think is one of the world's, one of the parts, one of the pillars of the film. Mm-hmm. Now, let me get to secrets. Now, what I liked about Eyes Wide Shut was how engrossing and riveting it is in terms of the second film. We talked. I talked about how there is this sort of, if you want to call it lurid drama, but domestic drama, marital drama, but really sort of erotic drama, so to speak, where you have this married couple and their issues. Right. The other aspect, of course, is the thriller aspect, which I think is slightly political, slightly plastics. And that is where the elements of the characters like Ziegler come in, Mandy to a certain extent, and of course, the Summerton Party. Of course, there's also Nick Nightingale, who is the piano singer, uh, piano player, and big singer. I think he was a med school dropout, which is how he knew um, Bill. And the whole password thing. And so, as I mentioned, I think the, you also have this thriller film that's in it, and which is very riveting. And this aspect, I believe, like I said, deals with the secrecy aspect, primarily. And it's... And i got to be careful about saying this, but one of the things I haven't liked about some people who have analyzed this film and the insistence is those on the right that kind of insist that this is somehow Stanley Kubrick's uh, expose of secret societies and more more specifically the Illuminati, which I find rather uh, to be stretching and 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 I find rather ridiculous mm-hmm. and uh, rather tedious, I should say, and. I do believe that Kubrick is making a comment or commentary on American society. And I think that he is making a comment about a sort of strata of American society and their tastes and their habits and their desires and their wants. Sexuality, of course, would be a big component of that, but about this society. So, the thriller element is what I consider the finest part of this film. Now, let's look at that party, uh, the so-called orgy. What is the name of the mansion that they have the party at? Summerton, correct? Now, where does the name Summerton come from? We hear the name Summerton. And in the analyses that I've seen, you know, people mention Summerton. But 
much like with Alice in Wonderland, my analysis of the film in terms of a mostly literate analysis is that Bill is Alice. Mm -hmm. Not that he is Alice's wife, but he is Alice from Alice in Wonderland. As you had mentioned, he's going down the rabbit hole. He is in Wonderland, and Wonderland is basically Summerton. Now, the name Summerton, I believe, was not chosen out of thin air. The Summerton I'm familiar with is the so-called Summerton Man. The so-called Summerton Man was a man who was found in a beach in Australia, I believe in Melbourne. In 1948, there was a dead man found on the beach. He was not identified. They had run his fingerprints. They couldn't find out who he was. And so he's been known as the Somerton Man for decades. And he had, I think, a piece of paper in his pocket. And I believe it was from the Omar, the, the Rubiyat by Omar Khayyam, if I'm not mistaken. I believe the translation of it was, it is ended. I believe that that reference to Summerton has to be related to the Summerton. And so why is the mansion called Summerton? My, my view and my analysis is that this is part of the mystery of this, if you want to call it cabal secret society. And you notice that they never discuss who the people were at the party. When Bill and Ziegler meet in the billiard room, Ziegler tells him, at one point, he said, the people that were there, and I'm not going to say who they are, Mm -hmm. notice we don't know who they are. And he doesn't state who they are because he can't say who they are. And so I believe the term Summerton refers to the sort of eternal sense of mystery, not only at this orgy, not only at this party, but also pervading the sort of class strata and and system, the people that were there and the interests they represent. We don't know and thus it's a mystery. Ziegler doesn't tell Bill. And he refuses to tell Bill because he clearly can't. He's, he notes that there were people there that were, and I'll put it in these terms, far more powerful than Bill. Mm-hmm. So that sense of secrecy is there. And that's why I know that secrecy is that other component in this film. And the sense of mystery. Because I that term Summerton just is like a red light to me. And so when I when I was aware of the Summerton man and what happened in Australia, I believe he has not been identified. But I believe that name Kubrick and Frederick Raphael who wrote the screenplay. But but both of them had to be familiar with that with that with that individual or what happened to him or what I'm convinced because that name is very specific. There's nothing generic about that. I mean, it's not like this mansion is called, you know, um, Essex or some other English name. 
you know, it, it's, it's a specific name. It's Somerton. Just as we don't know anything about that man in Australia, we also do not know anything about the people at that party. We do not know who they are, what interests they represent, how powerful or how wealthy or how or who they are. All we know is that there are a bunch of individuals in masks and clothes. And the only person who's unmasked at that party is Bill. Mm-hmm. At one point, he's told he's got to get naked, I believe. So it's they wanted him to reveal virtually everything. It's clear that, let's just say, another form of sexuality was going to happen and not a pleasing one for Bill. Mm-hmm. Kubrick is not the type of filmmaker where anything happens by by accident. So clearly that name was chosen for a reason. And it very well might be the what you said, because we don't even know not only who is at the party or 100% of what is, goes on at the party, but we don't even know the consequences of the night that happened at the party because we, you know, we're given pieces of that Nick uh, checked out of his hotel and he was bruised, but uh, you know, we get mm-hmm. pieces of that Mandy is dead, but was it an overdose or was it murder for, you know, um, her kind of redeeming Bill and giving, letting him leave the party unscathed, uh, more or less. It, it's, yeah, I mean, the whole, it's, it's almost in a weird, in a weird way, almost kind of supernatural. I mean, it's not supernatural, at least not blatantly, but it almost like the, the a supernatural essence that kind of emanates off of the mansion itself. Interesting. Um, I think it's it seems otherworldly, but it's mm-hmm. of this world, right? You know, it is the real. That I say, it's the dream world and the real world. Exactly. And that's that's why those two forces are never delineated and bifurcated in this film. They're left free roaming and ranging about, and they come together and they break apart. You know. That's I think that's one of the reasons among the many many why this film kind of frustrates some people. It's not a film that gives you answers, and it doesn't make you settle down and say, "Well, this is this and that is that." It doesn't completely label and categorize this phenomena and that phenomena. We have to kind of go through it. In a sense, Bill is sort of like the, or isn't sort of like, but he is the sort of uh, portal that we go through. He's our guide and we follow him and, and we're drawn into this sort of matrix. <laughs> Another film that came out that yep. year in 1999. Yep. But we're drawn into this matrix. Uh, and much like the film The Matrix, I never thought I'd be comparing <laughs> the two, but it actually kind of makes sense. The Matrix isn't the real world, but it seems like a real world. The real world in The Matrix is this burnout husk of a post-apocalyptic landscape that has a bunch of people in, you know, units. That aren't even a lot. That aren't even awake. Right. They're in a sort of uh, 
artificially kept state of sleep or something. Um, so the difference, of course, and again, I didn't think that I would be using the Matrix as a comparison to this film, is that the Matrix isn't separate from the reality. We don't get the red pill and the blue pill. Right. That's how the Matrix differentiates. You take the red pill, this will happen. You take the blue pill, this will happen. In a sense, they're both red pills and they're both blue pills. And we don't know which is the red pill and we don't know which is the blue pill. What we're given are two blue pills <laughs> and sometimes two red pills. Yeah, two, two purple pills. And it's interesting because... <laughs> <Figure it out. laughs> and it's interesting because those colors do figure into the film. When you look at Red Cloak, he's literally wearing red. He's almost mm -hmm. like a... Uh, the cardinal um and there's also sort of blue lighting at certain points uh in terms of the lighting scheme in the film so you know i'm just thinking i just thought about this right off the top of my head but which i shouldn't admit because <laughs> it wasn't part of my sort of pre-planned analysis i didn't think about the matrix and stuff at, as a comparative point uh but I just compared the Matrix to Rise Watch. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know how people are going to react. I, I think that no, I think that's a an an apt comparison, and it's as I mentioned, I've co we've covered a few different 1999 films uh, on this podcast already this year, and I'm actually at the moment reading a, a book called Best Movie Year Ever: How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, and how those films are all thematically linked and how they relate to the culture at the time. So, I mean, I think there was clearly something in the water at the turn of the century uh, where everyone was questioning the nature of our reality and what was possible. And I mean, because this is also that's also the year of uh, movies like Fight Club, where, again, things are being challenged. What's real? What's not? And you're kind of uh, questioning everything in your surroundings. And in 1999, coming off of Mission Impossible and Jerry Maguire as his last films, this is not that kind of challenging film is not what moviegoers were prepared for from Tom Cruise. And then you add the extra expectation of going in, knowing that this is Stanley Kubrick's final film. Uh, you know, I, I, I could see why people initially, at least casual moviegoers, I think um, critics were a little more mixed on it, but I, I could definitely see casual moviegoers not, not being into this at least uh, at first which is part of why, as you know, as a teenager, I was like, I don't know if I want to watch that. I don't it feels like it's above my pay grade uh, at that point. Um, do you do you think this is a fitting uh, swan song for Kubrick uh, as far as his you know esteemed career up to that point? It's a kind of interesting swan song. I don't think it's the film that anybody could have predicted would be his final one. Right. They probably would have thought it would have been, I don't know, something set in outer space, like AI, which ended which, up being right. made by Steven Spielberg. Well, of course, that's actually set in Earth, not in outer space. But um, I think, I don't think that people would have expected this kind of film from, from Stanley Kubrick. I think that's part of the reason that the reaction to this film was surprise it's like well we didn't expect the film dealing with 
sexuality in quite this way. We also didn't expect a film dealing with secrecy in such a way. So the mystery of the film is what lingers and it's an important component to this picture because we end up not knowing. What we know is what goes on with Bill and Alice in their home. We have a sense of certainty, not total certainty, perhaps, but a certain sense of certainty. We can see what's happening there. We see that she's being honest. We see that she has sexual desires. We see what his opinions are about women and sexual and what he feels, you know, he, he is as a person. He would never lie to her as he says at one point. But once we get to the, and, and so that sort of sexual sexuality, that sort of, as I mentioned, that film, that drama, that sexual drama, that marital drama, we have a, a sense of, of actuality we have a sense of we have a sense of of knowledge about these people and what they're going through at least a little but once we get to the thriller once we get to the secrecy aspect we don't have that we're adrift we're lost who are these people what are they about you know why why does red cloak uh, basically performed something akin to a ritual by waving that scepter, tapping on his stick, or should I say his uh, cane a couple of times. What is that about? I mean, we know there's sex at the Somerton Mansion. We know there's an orgy at the Somerton Mansion. But we don't know who these people are we don't know what they're into other than sex. And we don't know why they've chosen this location to engage in these activities. You know, these people could go to a hotel, you know, they could go to a hotel room individually if they wanted to and take, you know, someone with them and engage in whatever illicit activities they want or sensual activities they want. Mm. But why hold these parties? Why hold these events? Who are these people? We don't know. We, we are treated and what we get is mystery, not certainty. Some people like mystery, but a lot of people don't. They want to know why. You know what they say about screenwriting, right? what's the script about or what's the big question with the script? Mm -hmm. What happens next? Well, I mean, I think that's the big question that the movie ends on. And, and as you were saying about how open to interpretation the film is, one kind of crazy theory that I did stumble upon was that Alice actually knows more than she's letting on because there are some little hints at, at sort of the, a mystery involving her. I mean, we do have her, her dream, which sounds like it's, pretty accurately what would have what was going on at that party at some point um and mm. you know you you see her kind of looking at him across the room smiling like there's lingering shots on her that seem like that that they're trying to plant the seed of doubt in the viewer um as you mentioned she's the one that that expresses the desire she's ultimately the one that um 
that, that gets what she wants in the end where she kind of it's almost like you, if you wanted to see it this way you could almost see it as like um like uh fincher's the game a little bit where she kind of almost in, in a hypothetical situation sends her husband on this like sexual visit vision quest and then at the end of it he he's like reawake their eyes are open as she says um at the end of the film that they made it through that and then now they can you know, I guess immediately leave that store and, and go have sex and then, you know, restore their marriage. Um, so what do, what do you make of kind of that read on the film? Do you think there's any uh, any validity to that? And it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Alice character, because as I mentioned before, she's the only female that I can think of who isn't. I mean, maybe you can say the married woman who professes her love for Bill's for Bill right. and she has a husband who looks a little like Bill. <laughs> uh, young handsome guy. Um but she's one of the few women, if not the only real woman, who isn't a victim in some way in the film. And so what we get from her is real desire that is as close to pure sexuality as we can get from these two characters. We see real raw sexuality from Alice's character when she describes the naval officer, the military guy that she dreamed of uh, having sex with. We see that with her. We don't see any of that with Bill. And of course, Alice at the end is the one that suggests they go and have sex at mm-hmm. the end of the film. Yeah. So the desire and the sexuality is expressed by and emanates from her, even though it doesn't, even though it doesn't, she isn't looking for it openly throughout the film. In fact, when she deals with Sander, she eventually turns him down, even though he makes his best pitch when dancing with her mm-hmm. to, uh, to be, to be her lover, to get involved with her sexually. So it's interesting to me how how important female sexuality is in this film. Just as I just as I think that that Bill is actually Alice, and he has entered Wonderland in terms of the Summerton Mansion, that sort of Wonderland is also is falling through the looking glass. So Alice is, in a sense, the sort of sexual sexual seeker. She's the one that 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 is the center of desire. She isn't the object of desire per se, but she's the but she is seeking desire, seeking sexuality in a way that we would normally associate with Bill or with or with a male character. Because what does Bill say when he's talking to his wife? He talks about how women, his views of women are kind of, kind of backward, mm-hmm. or at least maybe old fashioned. But he's sort of, and that's why he's so surprised when, when Alice discloses her desire for this naval officer, for this military man. Because she is the real, she's the real 
seeker of sex. But she doesn't wear it like Bill does. So in a sense, it's a kind of mixing. Again, it's another sort of, it's a switch here. And that's the interesting thing. I think female desire is pretty important in this film. Absolutely. We don't always see it with the women in the film, but we see it with Alice. And it's no, it, it's no surprise that she says at the, film, at the end that they should go and have sex. Notice he doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's at a loss for what they yeah. should do. And <laughs> she has the answer. Uh, right. It's a shift right. in the in the power dynamic, I think is what it is. It's sexuality as right. leverage in, in some weird way. Um, in that, you know, at the beginning she's kind of in her marriage, they're both very complacent, kind of entertaining other options, but not really doing anything about it. And then by the end of it, it's just you know, she's fully, you know, emerged as a as a sexual being. Uh, and she can be open and upfront about it. And he has kind of been awakened to that fact. And I think it's just about, yeah, it's about breaking down the, those barriers as far as how we think men and women think about sex. Right. That's very important. And I think that's something that isn't really discussed in some of the analyses I've seen of uh, Eyes Wide Shut. I think that women are kind of given short shrift in this film and they shouldn't be because they're very important. I think more important in a sense than Bill. Mm -hmm. In terms of sexuality, I think Alice is far more important than Bill is. But yeah. when it comes to secrecy, that's that's where Bill's role is because he's he he's on the trail, much like a detective. He's on the trail trying to find out what happened with Mandy, what happened with what what's going on at that party. So it's, it's a film that I think defies expectations and defies explanations and even defies interpretations in many respects. Yeah. Um, because I think of what I mentioned before, it's the dream state or the dream world and the real world colliding and intertwining and the other structure of sexuality and secrecy, they also intertwine. But unlike the dream world and the real world, they also move back to their separate position. Then, of course, as I mentioned before, there's the sense of the film as two films in one. It's this intimate a sort of intimate drama, and there's this intense thriller. So my, my view of the film and my analysis of the film is always is kind of a binary one. It's, it's the character of Bill is almost like a, uh, a character from literature heading down the river sticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, Great. Going from sort of the world above sort of terra to subterranean world. He's going from the ground level to the underworld, the demimon. And um, he's fortunate to get out of the demimon alive, really, in many respects. But, as some people like to say, is it real or is it a dream? What's real and what's a dream? 
And ultimately, when you ask those questions, my answer would be, it's all a dream and it's all real Mm -hmm. because they're all intertwined. If you have to ask what's the fantasy and what's reality, then you're missing the point of the film. Yeah. Yeah, the the Kubrick's Kubrick's not really interested in, in literalizing anything. And I, I agree with you. Bill is essentially a vehicle that gets us through. I mean, he's the literal literal peeping Tom in this movie, uh, just kind of floating from, from one environment to the next. And you already put that more eloquently than I could have. I mean, he says at, one, at the end of the film, he's like, no dream is ever just a dream. So it is really, as you said, it's ultimately one of those things where it's, is it real? Is it a dream? Ultimately, it doesn't matter because it's the, it's about the journey that these characters have been on and, and, you know, what are they, what, what, as you said, what happens next? Where does it, where does it go now from here? What are they, what's the next step for their, for their marriage? So, um, before we start winding down, is there anything about Eyes Wide Shut that you wanted to make sure we talk about? Well, I, I've covered my analysis and my ex, uh, explication of what I think the structure of the film is or structures and sort of the narrative examination of it. Uh, I'm glad that Eyes Wide Shut is being reexamined and has been reexamined and that there's a better critical evaluation of it. I think it was treated shabbily when it came out 20 years ago. I think it's treated a lot better now. It it would be interesting to see what Stanley would have thought about the reaction to the film. Um, But we really just don't have that ability to wonder about that since he sadly passed on. Mm -hmm. And my view of this film, I think, is has always been that it it's it's a film that is underrated and overlooked, and sadly so. And it, I, in a way, I guess I'm not surprised that it was the last film in his career. I think it's it's a film that sort of takes chances in a way that even Stanley's other films did not. I think it takes more chances than some of his other films. And I think in this country, people don't want films that take chances. They want films that make them feel safe. You know, people say they want films that are intriguing and fascinating and, 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 you know, thought provoking. What they want, I think is basically well done melodrama mm. because Woody Allen that said basically what you don't have is drama in the United States. You have melodrama. And I think to a certain extent is right. There's very little real drama in this country. And there's very little, I think, authentic examination in this country in terms of film. You know, like I said, I stopped reviewing films in 2010. And I think a lot of the box office or a lot of the, the films that have come out now, the American box office is dominated by superhero films mm-hmm. and fantasy. Not so much sci-fi, but that's a part of it. And so where the creativity is gone is in television. So I probably have ended up watching as many TV shows, if not more TV shows than movies 
because that's where the creative energies and the creative juices have gone. And, you know, that was slowly happening when Kubrick's film Eyes Wide Shut came out in 1999. You're seeing the beginning of that sort of um, renaissance in television, uh, that new golden age, so to speak, with The Sopranos and eventually Mad Men and Breaking Bad and so forth. Um, but I think the reason why I think Eyes Wide Shut is so important is what you mentioned about 1999. I think it was a film that came out in a year of intriguing film. Yeah. And that's part of the reason it's so important and well worth examining and studying um, is because of when it came out as much as it is what it's about. Um, and I would say in regards to the film that you have to basically not come to the film expecting answers, but asking questions, ask the questions, but don't expect the answers. Right. And because you're not going to get a lot of answers with a lot of Stanley Kubrick films. See the, the mark of a really good film, the mark of a masterpiece and the mark of an excellent film is that if, an excellent film and a masterpiece both ask questions that only the audience can provide for themselves. They will only give you so much, but you have to provide the answers yourself. Whether it's someone like Ingmar Bergman in his films or Antonioni especially, um, it's easy to lay out what not only will happen narratively with characters, but what these characters are going through and what the message is or the moral is. If you need a message and you need a moral, then you should be working for Western Union. <laughs> um, again, I think the mark of an excellent film and a masterpiece is that they ask questions and they lead to asking questions. And the audience has to find the answers within their themselves in terms of their viewing of the film. Mm -hmm. And Eyes Wide Shut is one such excellent film, one such masterpiece, in that it requires the audience to ask the questions and find the answers within themselves. And people don't want to do that most of the time, which is odd when you put it in the context of a Stanley Kubrick film, Stanley Kubrick is not Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, who admittedly is a, a, ver a very effective director, will answer your questions. So you don't have to ask any, you don't have to seek any answers within yourself or from your viewing of his films because he gives you all the answers. Stanley Kubrick does not give you all the answers he gives you probably none he gives you lots of partial answers that you either have to assemble yourself mm. or decide whether or not they are really answers or uh, just misdirection right right and so that's why it's important to look at it that sexuality and secrecy those two worlds and those that dual structure in this film the secrecy is probably what not at people sexuality to a minor extent, but secrecy is what gnawed them. How come we don't know? Yeah, but the character doesn't know. 
Bill doesn't know. And Ziegler knows enough, but he's not going to tell him. And that frustrates Bill. And guess what? Since Bill is our, 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 uh, our sort of, um, our driver along in this journey in the film, it will frustrate people in the audience. It will frustrate pe- others. It will frustrate those viewing it. So like Bill, you're frustrated. Like Bill, you get upset. Like Bill, you wonder where are the answers. You know, but you don't get them. Yeah, I mean, if, if people listening to this that haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut, I would definitely recommend they check it out. So especially, as I said, as part of a thematic whole that was 1999 as uh, Stanley Kubrick's final film, as one of the most surprising and, and I guess riskiest choices in Tom Cruise's uh, career, it's definitely worth watching and considering on multiple fronts. I, I would agree with you there, Albert. Um, can you tell listeners where they can find you on social media? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm on Twitter, at Critic Incorporated. That's my Twitter handle, at Critic Incorporated. I'm also on Facebook under my name, Albert Lanier. So uh, you can find me on Facebook under my name, Albert Lanier. So they can find me there on Twitter and on Facebook. Excellent. Albert, thank you so much for coming on the Crooked Table podcast and getting me to finally watch. This was a major blind spot of mine, so I'm glad that I've finally seen it. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's definitely something that I'm I'm anxious to revisit and uh, read, you know, form a little bit more of my own uh, my own interpretation of it. As a, as I said, this is the first time watching it, so there's only so much I can I could uh, put together with with uh, that one experience. But um, yeah, this was a this was a great choice, and uh, thanks for bringing it to the table. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed being able to, for the first time in years, actually analyze a film <laughs> with, without just having to write up something and get it out there, be able to kind of sit back and actually discuss a film. Yeah. I yeah. kind of really enjoyed this. Excellent. Well, you're welcome back anytime. We'll have to come up with a, an equally dense film to break down. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely welcome to come back on the show down the line. Well, thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Albert. Have a good one. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z R double O K E D.